Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. June 5th is the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, a wound to this country so deep that we're still assessing the impact. Dawn Porter is a documentarian who has just made an important contribution to that effort, analyzing the assassination, but more importantly, RFK's life and legacy. She dives into the controversy surrounding the trial of the man eventually convicted of Kennedy's murder, Sirhan Sirhan, including witness tampering and destruction of evidence. And she went through hundreds of hours of ABC news footage that hadn't been seen since the 60s, conducted dozens of interviews with Kennedy's friends and associates, from Marion Wright Edelman to Harry Belafonte. What emerges is a fresh portrait of a man destined to change the course of history. Whether it's the problems of violence, whether it's the problems of equal justice, whether it's the problems that we have in Vietnam, we can do things. We can accomplish things. We can make progress. Porter's previous work has racked up awards at Sundance, an Emmy nomination, and much more. Particularly impressive given how brief her filmmaking career has been so far. She was a big-shot corporate lawyer before she ever got the creative bug. You came to this work as a documentary filmmaker later in your life. I did. Was that an advantage, a disadvantage, or both? I think it was a big advantage. I was less romantic about it, and I used my background as a lawyer and all my contacts in entertainment. So I'd worked for ABC News. I'd worked for A&E Television. During your legal career? During my legal career. And, you know, got to kind of see the business side of film. Interesting. So I spent a year, my like my last year at A&E, going to film conferences and documentary it's like a little Harry Potter world of documentary people. We all go around to different conferences and talk to each other. Um, so I went to a bunch of those conferences and I saw like what people were buying, what people were doing, state of the market, that kind of thing, before I even had a film. What, I, what years was that? Would you, what, so what that, that would have been about 2000, let's see, 
seven, so ten years ago, roughly. Yeah, right. and it was a really interesting time in documentary. Changing. Yeah, we had like reality TV on television, and uh, you know the documentary film world was intense, but the market was opening up, and more films were starting to get produced. Um, so you know, my background is my father was a photographer, um, worked in New York City. And he, what kind of photography? He was a commercial photographer. So he had, um, I don't know if you've ever been like all the way on the east side in the 50s. There were those old carriage houses. And that's where his studio was. I used to live on 58th between 1st and 2nd. So it was way over like, you know, that kind of like east end area. And so when I was little, that I'd spent a lot of time there. Like literally the floor was cobblestones, tall ceilings, those big wide doors. That's where his studio was. And like film, chemicals, you know. Um, so I had come from this kind of artsy family background, so I became a lawyer. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you went, don't um, do that. I was like, oh, I want a real job. Art's what I did with my father for fun. Like some people do sports. We used to make 35 millimeter films. Like- yeah, but, but it's interesting to me how you go to Swarthmore, you go to a good, you go to a great school, you go to a great law school, you go to Georgetown Law School. You are in mafia terms a made guy. You're in. <laughs> I was so made. You're made. You're totally made, and uh, you're going to have a go, you're going to have a legal career. It's gonna All be great. set. And you'd proceed to get a book of matches and burn that to the ground <laughs> to go into that lucrative uh, uh, documentary filmmaking career of yours. But my point is, was there a moment where you turn around and you go? I'm going to go do that. Yeah. What was the transition? You know, um, what it really was, was during my time at ABC, my job uh, was network standards. What we did is we would read scripts for long-form investigative stories, um, and we would also... For ABC News. For ABC News. You know, so if somebody's going to do a hidden camera report or... Which shows? All of them. I mean, for 2020, uh, for 2020 primarily, but long-form hour specials. Um, anything that was like complicated, hidden, Nightline. hidden cameras. You know, Nightline was so buttoned up. We right. rarely had to to. Not that twenty twenty is not buttoned up, but they were. Nightline's really, Nightline's really, buttoned really, up. really, really buttoned up. But so the, you know, the other piece of it was sitting in edit rooms. I probably have watched thousands and thousands of hours of news stories. And when you watch a really good reporter and editor working together, it's beautiful. Like they take something complicated. And they make it comprehensible. And I was really impressed with that. In some ways, that's what lawyers do, right? We tell a story with a set of facts. We have to make something comprehensible. So the skills matched up. Um, But then the problem was I was kind of at a high level at ABC, I was like, nobody's going to hire me to produce anything because I don't know how to do anything. (laughs) But um, It's like Bob Iger saying he wants to go run Pirates of the Caribbean. (laughs) That's right. Were you also compelled from the work you did to look at a lot of footage and a lot of programming as well? A lot of footage. So we would watch, you know, the producers would put together a whole rough cut of something. And sometimes I would watch the raw tape and watch the interview. Because as you know, you can cut things and make them look a certain way. And I always like really appreciated that, appreciated watching how this long interview got cut down to something. And our job was to make sure that it was fair, that it accurately represented. And I took it really seriously, you know, like like being a journalist and coming to giving people their best shot. Like that's what I learned in that job is if you give people their best shot, even if you disagree with them, they will respect you if, you, if they know that you didn't 
try and manipulate and make them look mm-hmm. a certain way. Um, let them make their presentation. Yeah, let yeah. them make their case. Let me ask you this, yeah. though. That, that, that as a young woman, and you're in college and so forth, Swarthmore, and so what was film and what was documentary film in your mm-hmm. life? Were you a fan? Were you consuming some oh, of that stuff? Are you kidding? I'm at Swarthmore. I'm, like, dressed in black, and, you know, I didn't smoke, but yeah. I might as well have, yeah. you know. You fake smoked. Yeah, fake. <laughs> like a, yeah, like a, like a candy cigarette, yeah. <laughs> I was more interested in, in political things. Theory. What was I your was undergrad major? Political science and philosophy. So other very marketable skills. Reading the great books. The great books. You know, I was obsessed with ancient political theory. I thought I was going to teach. Man, you're just on fire. <laughs> you're just number one with a bullet. Um, I and I. Really, the only reason I didn't go to graduate school is because I learned that you would have to read, write, and translate not just Latin, but ancient Latin. And I thought, I don't really actually want to do that. Um, but like, You drew I, the line there. I, just, I was like, so this has to stop somewhere. But, you know, I had like this really formative mentor, um, great teachers who really loved diving into materials and into stories. I've never been as good a writer as when I was in college. You know, like we just were writing all the time. Um, And I had, uh, in particular, uh, an English professor who was a big fan of Laurie Anderson. And so he would constantly, like play her music this is this is what you're paying for when you go to college Um, so not a lot of film going not a lot he would bring a lot of film into so i took but it wasn't a major then it wasn't like it it wasn't on my radar screen as like that could be a job you know but documentary film as you well know has become for lack of a better word so much more popularized than it was 10 years ago it has you know when i started and it was roughly 10 years ago um you know, started really focusing, getting interested, um, you know, that coincided with reality television, quote unquote reality. Um, And then as reality became less real, and also as things got faster and quick cuts and yada, 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 I think people actually like sinking into a story. And that's what good documentaries do. They don't, you know, they let you spend some time um, with a subject. And they also let you it goes back to my ABC time, at least like for me, I feel like what I love to do is, is bring as, as much of the story, you know, to an audience and let them enter it where they will and judge it how they will, you know, instead of like hitting people over the head with something like let them enter a subject and think about it for a little while. So was there a moment when you, what's the moment when you decide I'm going to do this, I'm going to make a film? Um, I mean, part of it was meeting, I met these young public defenders. Um, When I was in law school, I did clinics to represent victims of domestic violence. And my husband, he did the criminal defense clinic. So I was like, your clients are beating up my clients. They should stay locked up forever. Very unsworthy. And then I got introduced to these like public defender people. And I went to their, they have this training session in Alabama. So they were like, do you want to come see our training session. So I said, sure, I want to go to Alabama in July. But I get down there. You know, a lot of lawyers are not necessarily happy people. They're not happy in their jobs, right? And I get down there and these young kids in their 20s, they're representing people accused of terrible crimes and they make no money and they're happy as can be. They cannot wait to get to work. And I kind of got teary and I thought like, this is kind of what it's supposed to be. Like when you go to law school, you think you're going to help people. So I just got curious about them. So that was, I was like, you know, I think as a lawyer, I can help translate 
some of the legal stuff. So at that moment, I was like, this should be something. So my first film is called Gideon's Army. Um, it's on HBO. I didn't know if it was going to be a feature film or a short or whatever, but it should be something. So who do you go to? Sheila? Because we had her on the show, too. You had Sheila yeah. on, yeah. yes, yes. Um, Sheila Nevins, for our listeners, who's the head of HBO Documentaries. Were you, were you in, uh, pitching to her eventually? So um, I uh, got one of the best producers in documentary, Julie Goldman, and Julie had worked with HBO a lot, and she said, we should go to Sheila. So I'm like, great, we should go to Sheila. So we went to show her some footage, and the first thing she says is, it's not very cinematic, is it? <laughs> I was like, hi, nice to meet you. (laughs) But, you know, Sheila really is a genius. Mm -hmm. And she said, your film is all heart. And she just kept pushing us to find the heart of the subject. Don't make this a news story. Make it about the people and what people go through. And so, you know, HBO bought it before we had a rough cut. And then it goes to Sundance. You know, that's your first film. That's my first and what did you, what did you yeah. learn from making your first film? Like when it was over, did you say to yourself, oh, God, you watch the movie and say, oh, God, I wish I'd done this. I mean, I'm assuming it's a learning experience. For oh, you. yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's I. So what did you get right and what got by you? One thing I learned is you tend to fall in love with your characters right. and um, you have to be not so romantic. You You really have to actually be true to the story. I learned that I can't fix everything I want to fix. We interviewed this kid, and he was a kid who was 16. Um, He was in jail. There was no evidence against this kid, like nothing at all. But the prosecutor wouldn't drop the charges for like nine months. He misses all that time in high school. He's in adult jail because he's 16. So finally, the prosecutor says, I will drop the charges, but in order to get out, he has to post bail, which was $3,000. And he's all excited because he's going to get out of jail. And we're filming this. And the lawyer calls his mother and says, he just has to post this bond and we'll get out. And she says, there's a long pause. And she says, how much is it? $3,000. And there's another long pause. And his mother says, I don't have it. And you see, like, the public defender who had moved mountains to get this kid out, which she shouldn't have had to do because there was no evidence against Mm. him. And, you know, we hang up the phone and she's just kind of devastated. So later on, we're leaving, and I said, you know what? I'm going to bail him out. Like, I just can't. I'm, like, throwing up sick here. This this child who was, like, doing great in school. And you he felt just... guilty about all that ABC legal money you had. Right. right. So, so having quit my job, reduced my family's income by half, I'm now going to bail right. out everybody. And she said to me, if you're going to make this movie, you can't do that. And I just felt like the lowest yeah. of the low, you know. Um, but, you know, things are hard. Things are, and, you know, you asked what I had learned from my first film. Um, documentaries should also entertain and be engaging as a film. It should stand together as a film. It, it's not a commercial. It's not a news piece. Um, so there's a story arc a that has hybrid. to emerge. It's a, it's a very... It's a weird hybrid. Yeah, and documentary is very collaborative. I don't edit. I don't shoot. I don't do anything useful. <laughs> so... You have to work with people who are really good. I had a great editor, Matthew Hamachek, who's worked with Matt Heineman. Um, so he did City of Ghosts. And I think the thing that came from sitting in edit rooms for so long was was like pacing, you know, is so important. Sure. And the like, audience is way ahead of you. 
Right. And being respectful of your audience, you know, like you got to move on. <laughs> the audience <laughs> you know? is way ahead of you. They're, yeah. they're, they're, you, you. Let's put it this way. And I learned this, oddly enough, from doing 30 Rock with Tina mm-hmm. Fey. I had this line, I'd say we would do the scenes. And I said, you're like a jockey and you give the horse the stick all the way to the end. Like we drive this scene and yeah. don't take any unearned pauses. And our audience is with us. Unearned pauses. I think that that's like really No key. unearned pauses. Yeah. And then and you're going and you say... Those people that don't keep up with us, who cares about right. them to begin with? But but in the films you've made, you talk about the kind of altruistic work that a lot of lawyers, uh, at least, I wonder if this filmmaking wound up being your chance to do the work you didn't get to do as a lawyer. That is perceptive and 100% right. right. It's kind of like... If I were a braver person, and actually my kid, because, you know, kids never miss an opportunity to... So my older son (laughs) said, well, if you really wanted to make change, you'd be a public defender. And I was like, oh, man, you know. Um, But he's kind of right. But you also have to know yourself. Two boys. How old are they? Eli is 16 and Will is 14. So teenage boys. I have two teenage boys. And now you're in San Francisco? Yes. Yeah. Because your husband got Googled? (laughs) You got Googleized? We're all Googled, and we have drunk the Kool-Aid. Yeah. (laughs) We love the Google. Yeah. No, it's... it's, Have you spent much time out there? Is it a a city that you were kind of disposed toward living there? I hadn't spent any time out there. No. No. And literally, we landed, and, um, you know, it's one good thing about the documentary community. People... I kind of I had uh, Bonnie Cohen and John Shank who um, just made the Al Gore film um, are some friends. So Bonnie corralled some of her girlfriends and they helped me find schools. One of them helped me get an apartment, yeah, which um, is very difficult. Which is very very difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, it's actually a very creative place and very open. They're kind of relaxed. I like it. You know, it was good for like New Yorker me who you know when we were first out there. Um, yeah, you know, I got a team getting people together, and then uh, you know people started packing up at five thirty, and I'm like, "Is it a half a day? Like, where's everyone going?" Um, but it's kind of good for us New Yorker people to slow down a little bit, you know. Although I do admit, like when I get here, I'm like, "Ah, oh, like people walk quickly, they order their coffee quickly." My favorite expression of that was, I think it was in the New Yorker. They did an article, the study of uh, Americans versus their European counterparts and the article was about pret-a-manger and they said that in, in european cities the pret-a-manger customer was willing to take the pre-prepared sandwich with limited options and have more time to eat the sandwich no not they want they, they they and they said in new york it was the, the situation was the opposite new yorkers want exactly what they want and they want to completely customize the sandwich and, and they're willing to have be less really time fast. they're going to shove it in their mouth yeah. but anyway now, <laughs> yes. you do the first movie, you tank that career, <laughs> and, you, and, you, and your husband's still with you, right? Yeah, and the kids stayed along, too. And the next movie is? Next movie is uh, called Spies in Mississippi, and it was um, in the 50s, the state of Mississippi established a domestic spy agency, and the sole purpose was to undermine the NAACP and stop civil rights. So it was this archive base. It was, it was a lot more traditional um, it was it was hard to get. I got the first money from Germany. You know, <laughs> like the Germans were like, we like to spies. So, yeah. um, you know, they never met a spy. Who they cares if like, we don't understand what they're saying? That's right. <laughs> they're spies. Um, it was funny, though, because, you know, they 
I, I did a co-production with a German company. And this is where, like, being a lawyer and understanding the business worked. Like, I knew there was money in Germany. So I was like, I can do this faster if I go to Germany first and rather than traipsing around in, in New York, like, trying to sell this. But they did the color correct. And, like, all the black people came back really black. <laughs> oh, my God. And I was like, you know what? We're different colors. Yeah. There's, like, we're all, we're yeah. all different. Um, so Take I did Spies. Yeah. Yes. So Spies went to PBS. Um after that, I did some. I did a short for Alex Gibney. Um, beautiful. Um, this was like one of my favorite projects ever. So he hired, I think it's ten different directors, and said, "Pick a story from the New Yorker, and go make a movie about it." So I picked the story by Catherine Boo, uh, you know, one of my great great authors, and she had written this story, Swamp Nurse, and it was about women who would go work with underage pregnant teens. And so they would work with the pregnant teen, but also stay with them for two years and basically teach them how to be mothers and make sure that these girls had health care mm-hmm. and, you know, didn't repeat a cycle of, of poverty. And this was where? Um, so this, so this is deep Texas, like, mm-hmm. like, you know, not Austin. I mean, like, you know, the nurse I followed was an evangelical and I loved this woman. Um, and, you know, making documentaries is also really, um, it's a good way to get out of our bubble, you know, like you see people who live without plumbing mm-hmm. um, and, you know, who are... Who face challenges we'll never face. Who, right. And who are are still like great mothers and resilient and happy people. And, um, but, you know, things are hard. And, you know, a lot of these... So then my third film was about abortion providers in the South. As my mother said, another comedy. (laughs) What drives me is what these people are... They're they're really brilliant and smart and creative, and they could do anything. And what is making them, day after day, return to these incredibly difficult situations? Um, And, like, it's that curiosity that drives you. Where was that set? So Dr. Parker was in Mississippi, where there's one abortion clinic left, and that's what kind of piqued my interest. Um, Parker's a man or a woman? Parker's uh, a man. What was his background faith-wise? How did he... he... Oh, so that's the other thing. I'm curious about people. I always want to find that regardless of their background, I've always wanted to see a program in which you have these doctors sit down and discuss what it's like for them to perform that procedure. He is very religious. Grew up, you know, kind of this side of evangelical. Thought he was going to be a minister. Um, Didn't do abortions for the first, like, 10 or 12 years of his career. And then he did a, a postdoc fellowship, and he saw all these uh, women who were dying from, you know, trying to self-induce and, and who didn't have medical care. And he says, he's like, I think Jesus would want me to provide health care. You know, like, isn't that what we're supposed to do? You know, the articles about him are like the ministry of Dr. Willie Parker. He refuses to cede religious ground to people who are opposed to abortion. And, you know, he can quote you every Bible passage about it. But, you know, when you get into abortion films, it's not like public defenders. Like, nobody cares about public defenders. Abortions, they care about. So, like, I made the mistake of showing a small clip, like, at a festival, because I was was trying to raise money for the the movie. And um, this, like, anti-choice group, like, put my picture up on a website... Documentary filmmaker Dawn Porter. 
If you haven't heard my interview with the woman who gave Porter her big break with Porter's film Gideon's Army, go straight to our archive at heresthething.org. Sheila Nevins is a delight. Everybody says, let's do an anti-Trump film, okay? I must get five pitches a day about let's do this, let's do who voted, let's do the Democrats who voted, let's do the women, the college graduate. Every day there's something. Hear more at heresthething.org. Coming up, Dawn Porter and I go deep into the weeds of the RFK conspiracy. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. I wanted to spend a good uh, amount of time not talking about 
your current project because uh, we, we could, <laughs> I know I'm like Netflix is going to fire me. Well, no, no, no. But meaning we could just talk about that, and I, I, I always have the concern that we make the conversation not about you but about him. Yeah. And you pitched it to them, or they commissioned you. How did that happen? Um, Laura Michael Chisson, who's worked with Robert Redford and produced for him, I went to her and I was like, Laura, I think this is a. Somebody had approached me about uh, the fact that Sirhan Sirhan was still in jail and alive. And his lawyers were trying to mount one last effort to get him out. And I was like, that's interesting. But I think in order to understand how sensational that trial was and that time was, you got to understand Bobby Kennedy. You got to understand his life. You know, the other thing was um, in my family, Bobby Kennedy, John Kennedy, they're really important to black people. Like, black people love the Kennedy brothers. You know, my grandmother's a picture. They eventually loved the Kennedy brothers. They, By the time I came around, right. they were beloved. Right. right? In so, the early days, maybe not so much. Absolutely. Yeah. There was, there was that evolution. They weren't necessarily the, the, the guardians of the civil rights that they became. It, it wasn't, I think it wasn't their top of mind issue. It was a process. Issue. It was a process. And, and so that's kind of what hooked me is, is, what was that process? How did, you know, a guy who... It, he wasn't. He wasn't a segregationist. He wasn't no. anti-civil rights, but it really wasn't well, a priority, right. right? And and how does he go from that to breaking the fast with Cesar Chavez and working with Dolores Huerta and um, getting King out of jail? And you know, so there, I was like, there's a complicated story there. So we then approached Netflix and said we thought it was a series, um, and they kind of got it, you know, pretty quickly. There's just nothing that's more aching and more painful than that idea of what would this country be That's right. if both of them, or even Robert Kennedy, had lived. Had lived. That ache is even deeper because they were kind of this new light in the country. They convinced the country to try something new and to go in a new direction. And having sold them on, you know, we can come together as a country, we can stop the war in Vietnam, we can, there is a way to racial reconciliation. Having sold at least half of the country on that premise, then Kennedy's killed. You know, you look back and you think, we got Nixon, we got, you know law and order writ large. There was a guy who did a film that's on the internet called Evidence of Revision. Right. Do you know the piece? Yes, yes. Right. So Terry Raymond, who did Evidence yeah. of Revision, the first three are JFK and RFK, yeah. then the fourth is King, and the fifth is that Jonestown was an MK Ultra breeding ground. <laughs> I didn't get to Jonestown. <laughs> yeah, Jonestown and, uh, was, was, a, was an MK Ultra breeding ground where they were breeding the next Sirhan Sirhans, because right. Sirhan Sirhan was a Manchurian style. Yeah, there's a whole bunch Shooter. of people who, who believe yeah. that there's like a, you know, the, but, CIA but, but, run school. Of course, there's a lot of evidence that he did not there's, act alone or you know, there, do it at all. There's questions. We cover that in the fourth episode. Um, what do you say about that? You know, um, so I hired an investigative reporter and I said, you know what? You go at this clean. You just like read everything. Who was that? Um, her name's Lauren Capps. And What's she, her background? Um, she's like a Berkeley journalism, you know, never met uh, like a police report she didn't want to read you know that kind of and she came back with what there's there's a lot of evidence so she went to like the old police reports you know we she went to the LA archives um you know, so a lot of evidence not there in the LA archives because they destroyed it. They destroyed a bunch. Yeah, a um, lot of the wood trimming and the, with the bullet the holes. The bullet in it. holes, sure, you know, gone, all gone. Um, and and they said they couldn't afford to store it. Yeah, it was really. Um, 
it's not satisfying explanation, you know, and it's Daryl Gates, um, like criminal justice system. So, um, so Lauren went and she wrote this like exhaustive treatise and watched every film. And, you know, I think the unfortunate, what we were certainly able to conclusively determine is Sirhan Sirhan had a terrible defense that, um, his lawyers didn't question any of the ballistics. They didn't run down any of the alternative theories. So, um, you know, I think what that does is it allows an opening. People don't feel satisfied by that verdict when they look closely at what happened. You get like all kinds of conspiracy theories and, you know, you don't get a satisfactory answer. Um, there's real questions. You know, the coroner in the in the case said Noguchi. that Noguchi said that Kennedy was shot at a matter of inches. There's no witness that puts Sirhan Sirhan sure. a number of inches. Noguchi, he's not put on by the defense. Right. He's not cross-examined by the defense. One of the most integral parts of the case. Right. The angle of the gun, the, the, the mastoid in the back of Kennedy's head, and Sirhan was more to the front and to the right of him. I mean, I've, I've read all this stuff over He's over. not put on by the defense. Right. He's not cross-examined by the defense. Like, the defense stipulated to Sirhan's guilt. So, you know, what kind of defense lawyer stipulates to guilt in the most infamous murder, you know, the whole country is is watching for this this quote-unquote trial. And that does not give you confidence in our justice system if you see that happening. I can't prove there's a second gunman or, you know, that's not my cross to bear. No one can. It, it, um, you hear you hear audio tapes. Yeah. You've heard this. Of yeah. the detective browbeating the woman that was the eyewitness with yeah. the polka dot dress situation. Yeah. And you hear him like, I mean, you've Sandra never Serrano. heard. Serrano. Yeah. We that, interviewed her. You did? So, yeah. Yeah. And she's. Is she she's, in your film? She is. She says the same thing today. I mean, we literally put it side by side. I found her incredibly compelling. She was one My of the God. first witnesses. You gave me a chill just now. Yeah, she was one of the first witnesses. There was no reason whatsoever for this young girl to make anything up. Right. She said, people came down the steps. They, they said, we shot him. I said, who did you shoot? She said, we shot Senator Kennedy. It was a girl and it was a guy who was Mexican-American and she's very, very upset. And if you go through, you know, so Lauren, like my, you know, Nancy Drew girl detective goes through and she's like, she's incredibly consistent. And, you know, it also turns out that, that there's like funny stuff happening with the bullets. They do this like crazy, like doctored test. This, this this gentleman in our film, Paul Schrade, who's now 92, mm-hmm. he was a labor advisor to Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul was shot that day. He was the other person who was grievously injured, shot in the head. And he... He's the James Brady. He kind of believes that Sirhan isn't the person. But, but the, you know, the bigger thing is none of this is brought out at the trial. None of this. So the jury doesn't even consider that there's a possible alternate conclusion. So mm-hmm. it's like, that's not what Bobby would want. So... You know, um, the focus of our film is Bobby Kennedy's life and legacy, but I felt like we couldn't ignore this huge, gaping question. Um, you know, and it feels it's very unsatisfying because it feels like it will not be solved. And, you know, to your point earlier about Americans hate not to have <laughs> an answer. Did it make you just so sad to think about where we are now? It was excruciating. You know, Netflix, um, so we, so what I really wanted to do was use archive material as much as possible. So we literally were living with 
footage. And from like a news nerd perspective, it was it was kind of dreamy because what we did is we digitized hundreds of hours of film footage. Mm. So the networks at that time... That's expensive, by the way. It is expensive. <laughs> All the docs I've worked on as uh, consultants, they just die on paying for that. Uh, I, I have to say, like Netflix, this is where they were a really, really great partner because I knew from my time at ABC that there was all this film, undigitized film, like in cans in the ABC archive. So I thought, you know, I said, you know, listen, if we go with specific asks for like time periods, ABC was just an upstart network trying to make its mark. What do you do? You follow the like sexy, good looking, charismatic candidate. ABC was the most recent. Right. uh... So they're following Kennedy and shooting him. But what what also that that did is, you know, we had to watch it all. So it was like living in that time and living with Kennedy. And what you see, what emerges is um, over time, particularly, you know, he doesn't start out that way. But once he digs in, he brings the same zeal that he brought to prosecuting uh, mob bosses. He brings that same passion and zeal and energy to fighting poverty and to saying, like, we can do better than this. You believed he cared. You, 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 you there's no other cared. conclusion that, right. that he's doing his best. And, you know, and then you also see, and, and I don't think this came into such stark reality until Trump came into office, but we sincerely believe he does not care. And, you know, it's like literally the first time, like, you know, I'm like certainly not a Reaganite or a Bushite or, you know, but um, I, I did think although I might disagree with the the way they implement policy, I did believe that they cared, you know, that that was their version of things. And you literally see Bobby Kennedy saying to people, not only do, does he care, but you must care. Mm. Like, that's what makes us human people. And that's what is going to ultimately bring us together. Caring, we're finished. That's yeah. right. And people signed on for that. They believe that. And I think that that's partly why... You know, it's such um, a hard, hard turn when he's executed and where the country ends up, um, you know, it's such a like a blow to people. What members of the family did you talk to? So I didn't interview them, you know. Um, I'm friends with Rory. She wasn't even born. You know, I've like talked to Rory about it and I thought... I don't think Ethel's gonna do it. Like the people I would have liked. She probably liked, wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, the people I would like to talk to. I would like to talk to Ethel because really, what we wanted to understand were, um, you know, like him as a person, um, what kind of what he was going through. But I thought, like you know, I feel like we should just make the archive interviews speak for themselves. Mm. And then what I did is have people who worked with Kennedy or for Kennedy. Um, so they're like firsthand kind of people who were there. And, you know, that's different than having it be your father, right? So um, I think that there's a certain amount of distance that is is a little healthier there. Um, also, no one speaks better to who Kennedy was than Kennedy himself. Right. Just stick him out there That's and right. you're pretty much done. You know, the the other thing is, um, I think that, that that's, you know, like you can't get enough of actually watching like Bobby and Jack together with Ethel, with their kids. The other thing is, um, it's painful. 
it is still excruciatingly painful um, for all of them. And I thought, you can't get enough of actually watching, like, Bobby and Jack together with Ethel, with their kids. The other thing is, um, it's painful. It is still excruciatingly painful um, for all of them. And I thought, like, I don't even want to drag them through that, Um you know, this is going to be a hard year. Like for all of us, he's a public figure, he's a historic figure. You know, um, I mean, I hope Rory doesn't mind me saying that, but she's like, I can't watch all these things. And then when when you watch the footage, like as a mother, it was hard. Like he, he was so physical with his kids. He was such a present, active father. You could see how close this family was. You know, he brought his kids everywhere. These were not kids who were lined up like Sound of Music and supposed to like be seen, not heard. They were just like in it. There's there's footage of Carrie um, during like the crisis, at, at, running at, in and out of the running the out. AG's you know, she, yeah, she's she's yeah. she's. Do you want to say hi to Carrie? You know, and <laughs> to look, cats and back. It's like no, no, I don't want to say hi to yeah, Carrie right, right now. Yeah. There's like a whole army outside. Yeah. But there was this blending of family, and seeing that, I thought. Just just what a huge loss. Dawn Porter. She advocated for ABC and A&E. Now she advocates for the powerless through storytelling. It's a good time to be a filmmaker. I picked a good time. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. Notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.